0: Thank you so much, Leslie. You know, there's some profound, simple truths that the church owns that I don't think we often think much about. And we heard one of those uh, in the the words of that hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. You realize when you walk down the streets of glory and Michael the archangel stops and looks at you, you know what you're going to say? Jesus is mine. And he's just going to fall down. He's not going to get that. The second person of the Trinity. You possess him. The angelic host has no clue about that. You know? They're just going (laughs) to... Friends, we have amazing truth. Amazing realities that operate... And um, I think that here yeah, that the setting of that, that profundity came through in that. So all those little, you know, little quote unquote songs we learned as children and we sang at camp and, you know, the angelic hosts are just going to be wowed, they're, they're, you know. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. So, thank you for that tremendous truth. Um, Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 11 as we continue our our study in the Psalms and Pastor's Absence. I think we've, I don't know how many we've covered, but we're going to cover another one today. Psalm 11 In the Lord I take refuge. The psalmist reports, the psalm of David, how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. The foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Penetrating question the psalmist asks this morning, what can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? What can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? We can think of the metaphor of foundations, at least in the context, it certainly is the, the foundations of that old faith community, uh, the Mosaic law, uh, the the. The constitution, if you will, of of the agreement between the theocratic king and the saints, the Old Testament saints, uh, which sort of delineated how their society and their civilization would, would prosper and flourish. And here the psalmist is walking through a time or an era when it seems like those very foundations are being destroyed. What do the righteous do? When the foundations are destroyed, we certainly don't have the foundations of the old covenant, the nation of Israel, but I think by way of analogy, we can ask sort of the same penetrating question, what about the foundations of our own country, the ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the foundations of a Judeo-Christian ethic of a morality, what about the foundations of our church, our, our, our Protestant friends who are all about us, our Methodist friends, our Lutheran friends, our, our, our Episcopalian friends, and their churches deny now the authority of the Word of God. They, they don't even believe that there is any supernatural uh, uh, inspiration of the text, and it's just a compilation of myths. Certainly the foundation is destroyed among the hearts and lives and minds of our Protestant friends who, who don't even believe that the Bible is God's Word. And it seems like all they do in their gathering is to propagate social progressivism. The foundations are destroyed in the church. The sanctity of marriage and the sacred nature of human sexuality as God defines it is being destroyed. What about the foundations of your life personally, as you come to grips with your own mortality, your health, your financial picture, your most valued relationship? What can the righteous do when these foundations are being destroyed? Well, my friends, I want you to write write this down. The righteous do today what they've always done. When the foundations are being destroyed, they take refuge in the Lord. The righteous take refuge in the Lord when the foundations are being destroyed. The psalmist unpacks what it means for the righteous to take refuge in the Lord in Psalm chapter 11. Four activities or four actions Are very clear this morning that you need to find reprieve and rescue in if you, in fact, are experiencing the foundations of your life in upheaval. The first thing that we see from the psalm this morning is that the righteous locate the Lord. The righteous locate the Lord. When the foundations are being destroyed, the righteous locate the Lord. We find that in verse number 4. The Lord, Jehovah, is in His holy temple. The Lord is the singular place of refuge. And the righteous look, To find the Lord. And they want to be wherever the Lord is. The Old Testament saint knew where to find the Lord, Jehovah. Uh, They knew that he would be located in Jerusalem with a Shekinah glory over the temple or tabernacle. And it would be there that they would find the Lord. We know that uh, even the Old Testament saint, when he was in captivity as the foundations certainly were removed at that point in his life, he still sought to locate the Lord. Remember Daniel threw open the doors of his windows to Jerusalem and he prayed because he knew the Lord was located in that city, in his temple, in his tabernacle. It explains the author and really all of Israel's love for Jerusalem, because it's there the presence of the Lord is found, at least was found, until the nation was carried off into captivity and the Shekinah glory of God left, as she now is in captivity and scattered and not enjoying the fulfillment of that old covenant promises. The New Testament saint also knows where to find the Lord. We don't look to Jerusalem. We don't throw open our windows to 6883 Reynolds Road. No, we don't do that. Individually, we positionally locate ourselves in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. The New Testament is robust with a new, air quote, geographic location where we locate the God of heaven. And that is in Christ. We find ourselves in Him. Practically, we work hard at not grieving the Holy Spirit uh, so that that that, that full assurance, that confidence, that fellowship that we have in that location will not become uh, handicapped and disenabled. No, we, we locate ourselves in Christ and we, we long for that warmth and fellowship that the Spirit brings so we, so we do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But corporately beyond that, the New Testament saint, the church saint, understands that the church is in fact the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, Now you, Corinthian church, and by extension... New Testament local churches. You are Christ's body and individually members of it. The church is the body of Christ. We, we run to the church. We run to the fellowship of God's people. The church is the location for the ministry of the gifts of the Spirit, for edification and care. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 24 says this, But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have, and listen to this, the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, All the members rejoice with it. The church is the location of the ministry of the gifts of the Spirit for edification and care. We run to God's people. We run, we locate the church because it is the household of God. 1 Timothy 3.15 But in case I am delayed, Paul writes to Timothy, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself In the household of God, which is the church, the assembly of God's people, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church, my friends, in this dispensation is the context where all of the wonderful third person imperatives in the New Testament are exercised, where all of the wonderful one another passages are enjoyed. It's in this context. It's in the context of the assembly, of the gathering together, that we find these things. Let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance. By the way, let us draw near. That is not a subjunctive in mood. Uh, It is an imperative, but it's an imperative that we're not familiar with. It's a third-person imperative. English doesn't translate that well. We don't have third-person imperatives. We have second persons. Singular and plural. But the Greek has third persons. And he says, let us, this is imperative. We are to do this. Draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Having your hearts sprinkled clean from a pure evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The New Testament saint, like the Old Testament saint, understands that when he locates the Lord appropriately, he will find him, as our text says, in holiness. The Lord is in His holy temple, the Old Testament saint. We know that when we locate the Lord in the context of in Christ individually and in the church, the saints gathered corporately, that there we are confronted with the Lord's holiness. Holiness. Can we say that to find the Lord as He is, is holy in His demands? Well, he will be. We find that there. And in that sense, we find him in his altogether different nature. You know, the church as she assembles together, as she replicates the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is replicating the holiness of God. We come, and part of the comfort we find is, is the comfort of learning, is the comfort of understanding where we have yet need where we yet need to grow where perhaps the foundations upon which we've planted our feet, as they seismically move underneath our feet, we, we reckon that perhaps there's another place where we need to place those feet. So as we come to the holy temple, as you will, we come as learners. We come to learn. We come to grow. We come to understand as learners. We are convinced by the truth, as Jesus spoke it in John 15, 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So as we locate, as the, as the psalmist did, in this church context, we come as learners. We come to the holy place. We come to be instructed. Not only do the righteous find the Lord, locate the Lord, but secondly this morning we see from our psalm that the righteous confess the sovereignty of God. The righteous confess the Lord's sovereignty. In in verse number 4, here we have the Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord's throne. This is a picture of authority. And because it's in heaven, it's a picture of sovereignty. He's over all things over all the events in your life. The specific foundation-destroying events that have occurred in your life are not outside of the Lord's control. Confessing the Lord's sovereignty in all circumstances, first of all, is appropriate because it reflects reality. It reflects reality. Clinically, people who don't live in the light of reality are said to be in denial. Are said to be in denial. My friends, the psalmist encourages us, don't be in spiritual denial. God is sovereign. God's sovereignty is the natural consequence of His omniscience. The fact that He knows everything all the time. He doesn't sit there and seek to remember anything. All of the data of All of the universe is intuitively present in His all-knowing. There are not options for God. He's all-knowing. It's a result of His omnipotence. He's all-powerful. Nothing can frustrate the authority and the will of God. And He's omnipresent He's everywhere present in the fullness of His being, theologians tell us, as they reflect truth from the Word of God. They have uh, used their sanctified imagination and have told us that it's a good thing that God is a spirit, because if He was a physical being like you and I, He would bump everything else out of the universe. There would be no room for the hundreds and thousands of galaxies that exist out there. He is immense, so good thing He's a spirit. He exists in the fullness of his being everywhere, all the time. So his sovereignty is a function of these realities along with his timelessness. He's eternal. He has no end. We can sort of conceive that at some level, but when we talk about no beginning, that humanity completely falls apart on. And while you should... And the only appropriate response is to bow the knee and to confess the sovereignty of God. Verses in the Old Testament that teach this, Daniel chapter 4, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Now this idea of being regarded as nothing isn't a value statement. We already know what God thinks about the powers in heaven and the powers on earth, humanity. He loves them. He believes they're very good. He created us in His image. This isn't a value statement. This is a statement as with regard to the contribution that humanity makes in helping God maintain this universe. I know that's a long thing to say. All I'm trying to say is, we don't have really anything to contribute. That's what Daniel's saying. God sovereignly, powerfully maintenances this massive universe, and you and I just don't have anything to contribute, Okay? We're extremely valuable because we've been created in the image of God, but we're regarded with no contribution. And that's okay. That's okay. We're the worshipers, remember? Worshipers aren't equals. Worshipers are worshipers. That's what we do well. Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Can I say this, though? That the questions that plague us in questions or in relationship to the sovereignty of God is the when and the where. His control is direct. And when and where is it indirect? Because there is evil out there. These are difficult things. How can God be sovereign over these things? Why does He allow these things? Or what is He doing? Well, to this I answer with an illustration that I found on the all knowing web. You know, there are some helpful things out there. So, this is not mine. I borrowed this, but I thought it was appropriate. If a man were to put an ant in a bowl, the sovereignty of the man over the ant is not in doubt. Can I hear an amen? All right, we get that. We can see that. The ant may try to crawl out, and the man may not want this to happen. But the man is not forced to crush the ant, to drown the ant, or to pick it up because he's sovereign. He's not forced to do that because he's sovereign. The man for reasons of his own, for reasons of his own, that was for dramatic effect because that's very (laughs) critical for your understanding, for reasons of his own may choose to let the ant crawl away. But the man is still in control. There is a difference between allowing the ant to leave the bowl and helplessly watching as it escapes. God does not helplessly watch anything. So the illustration of the man and the ant is at least a vague parallel. God's sovereignty over mankind. God can do anything. He can take action and intervene in any situation. However, he may choose to act indirectly or to allow certain things, here it is again, for reasons of his own. For reasons of his own. Everything that happens is, at the very least, the result of God's permissive will. Confessing the Lord's sovereignty not only is good because it reflects reality, my friends, and you don't want to be in denial, right? But it's good also because it makes possible a response that is a believing one rather than a pagan one. Again, pagan is not a pejorative term. I don't use it that way. I use it simply because a pagan is somebody who denies the existence of God. It's a technical term. You don't want to be pagan. Trust me, when this is all over with, you want to be a God-fearer. You want to be a saint. Obedient men and women of faith make it their habit to confess God's sovereignty, especially at difficult times. Job chapter 40. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. And again, this is not a value judgment. This is Job saying when it comes to the question of how you work out justice in the universe, I do not have anything to contribute to even understanding how you go about doing that. So in that sense, I am insignificant. And when I try to operate in that arena, I have all kinds of problems, all kinds of limitations. You haven't called me to be your counselor, God. You've called me to be your worshiper. So help me to worship. Help me to look at that and go, whoa, that's cool. Rather than to look at that and go, whoa, you're terrible, God. You nimmy, numbskull, What are you doing? It's not our job. We're not called to that. We're called to bow the knee, not raise the fist. God'll work with us, it took Job 40 chapters. You take 40 chapters in your life to work this out. Yeah, everybody, oh, please Lord, not 40. Help me to get it after at least three or four. That's what I want too. Daniel did it. Isaiah did it. The psalmist does in Psalm 139. The New Testament expression of this in the church is Paul saying, I am confident of this very thing that He who began a good work in you will perfect it. There's sovereignty. If you're truly born again, this will happen in your life under the sovereign power the Holy Spirit's present in your life. Philippians 2. For it is God who works is at work in you. God is sovereignly working this all out. So the faithful know where to locate the Lord. They confess His sovereignty. Thirdly this morning, they consider His interests. They consider His interests. I take this from 4C all the way down to 5. Uh, His eyelids behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. In other words, His eyelids, the Lord, when the foundations are being destroyed... The Lord's not out of control. He has an interest. He has, he has things that he's seeking to do, and his eyelids are about the business, his, his eyes about seeing how we are going to respond. And uh, those, uh, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates, and on it goes. So behold, take a long, lingering look. the Lord tests the faithful understand and consider that when the foundations of their life are being moved and seemingly destroyed, it is time to behold, to take a long, lingering look at what's going on in my life. In the book of James, we have the New Testament local church expression of that where James employs someone who's sick and afflicted If you're suffering, you pray. If you're sick, you call the elders who anoint you with oil and pray over you. And a big part of that is the elders coming in. And you know the question they're asking? It's a very hard question to hear when you're sick. It's a realization of the idea that are there any unconfessed sins in your life? See, I think the author of James or James understands that, you know, the church doesn't ask each other those questions when people are sick. You know, you don't walk into the hospital and say, Ah, is there unrepentant sin in your life? That's not comforting, right? So this is something that an individual who is under the hand of God in this sickness... They long for that assurance and they invite the elders to come and part of what the elders do is they investigate the very difficult question. And the one who's under the the weight of that sickness considers is there unrepentant sin in my life? We know that what we're celebrating tonight, those who take of the Lord's Supper unworthily, many of them sleep. So we don't, I don't know what that is, you don't. And God's given a very special way to determine that, and you don't have to worry about it unless you're an elder. And if you're an elder, you don't even have to worry about it until somebody comes and asks you to worry about it. But when they do, elders, young people who may be elders one day, boy, you go in there trembling because you check your own heart for unrepentant sin. And part of what we're doing is we anoint oil. We're saying, we're confessing together as as much as we know, Lord, this man should be fully assured uh, of of his standing before you. And unless you sovereignly are choosing his home going we know of no reason why he shouldn't remain here with us i would argue now that's sort of kent hobie's take on that passage <laughs> go with the commentators you know on that it's just how i'm working that out so that's the new testament equivalent of this the sort of the pinnacle side of that uh, and then we do do that here uh, so again, it's a time to behold. It's a time to behold. Individually, we should be beholding. Uh, unless we think it's an, an unreasonable paradox that God would allow difficulty or evil even into our life. Recall Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Saul is in hearty agreement with putting to the death of Stephen evil. And on that great day, persecution begins against the church in Jerusalem. Evil. Evil. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. And I guarantee if they had never been scattered Gentile, you would not be sitting in this church, in the Gentile city of Mentor, Ohio, with a bunch of Gentiles. God knows what he's doing. And he uses even evil for his ends and his purposes. It may be a fight against evil, but it's not a fair fight. The king (laughs) is in control. Firmly in control. Firmly. So when the foundations are destroyed, the righteous know exactly what to do. We locate the Lord. We come to church. We enjoy the gifting of being among God's people. And we enjoy the, the care and the comfort. The same care. Uh, and, and we love it. And we find the Lord here. We find the Lord individually in, our, in Christ. We, 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 we rehearse those things. So we locate the Lord. We confess His sovereignty. Our confession is a lost art today. We're so used to going to God and telling Him everything we want and telling Him everything He needs to do. That's not good prayer. Good prayer is coming to God and telling Him how wonderful He is and how everything He's told you to do is absolutely right and good. Try that for a while. That'll be good. Do that. Make that, you know, God, you are absolutely right when you said I need to love you and love my neighbor. You are absolutely right. And I am so sorry that I haven't done that like I should. You are right, God. You are right. Don't you love it when people tell you you're right? My wife and I have a little joke. Occasionally, my wife's right. And occasionally, I'll say, honey, you right. she right. She goes, what did you say? I didn't hear you. And then I say, honey, you were right. God loves to hear it. He loves you to say, God, you are amazingly right. Tell him that a lot. We've got 600 imperatives in the New Testament alone. That'll take the rest of your life to tell him how right he really is on all those New Testament imperatives. How's that? That'd be a great thing for us to do. So we locate the Lord, we confess his sovereignty, and then we consider his interests. It's our last point. Um. Count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience, patience, endurance, and endurance, hope. This might be Romans 5. I'm probably getting it all discombobulated, but the point is he has interests. Understand what those interests are. And finally, this morning, they find confidence in the Lord's character. They find confidence in the Lord's character. This is 5B, Um, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. So what we have, the confidence in the Lord isn't so much in what the Lord will do. Because one thing the saint knows is that God's timing is none of his business. Jesus made that very clear. You know? Uh, so we have to growingly walk out of defining our faith along the lines of what God does for us. Because He may, in fact, choose to do absolutely nothing in your lifetime for you. from, from You know what I'm saying? From a cause and effect standpoint. What the saints know about God, what they don't know is they don't get the timelessness. We don't get that, right? We're time people. So we we know that, that God can work whenever he wants to. But what we are assured of is not what God does for us, but God's character. This is what the faithful, over time, relish. They absolutely relish. And love. So we, you know, when when we're little children, we talk about what we got for Christmas. When we're old and mature adults, we talk about how we miss mom. Because she was such a godly woman and we miss her at Christmas. We could care less whether we get anything. As we grow... We embrace who God is, not what has He done for me lately. That's little kids. And those are fine too. That's good. I mean, that's part. God does lots of neat things for new babes in Christ. But the psalmist, you know, whether David, whether God's going to do this now or later, the point is, what I do know is God, verse 5, you... Your soul, God, I know something about your soul, God. You hate wickedness. You hate it, or violence, I'm sorry, and the one who loves it. you, You hate that. You will judge them. You are righteous, and you love righteousness. So I'm going to keep being righteous, regardless. Because I know, God, you love these things. I know you do. And you will. I will behold your face. And this has the idea of not just being in the face of of, of the presence of, of God, but the idea of beholding, of knowing what I'm looking at. Knowing what I'm looking at and being amazed. So, how are the foundations of your existence? Are they being destroyed? Are they shifting seismically? The foundations of the success of nations, or good health, or financial security, or of Relationship, success: they will all, my friends, mark it down, feel the size, feel seismic shifts, and, in it, and some of them, in fact, may be destroyed, just like the nations of Israels is, currently. It's obliterated. There are no sacrifices. there is no Shekinah presence. It is gone. The righteous understand that when these foundations shift, they do so with a purpose, and are from the hand of a loving Heavenly Father. The righteous locate the Lord, they confess His sovereignty, they consider His interests, and they find confidence in His character. Believer, what is your response when the foundations of your life are destroyed? No, from this day going forward, this is God's intended response. This is what controls His permissive will in your life. Why does He allow evil? Why does He allow contradictory circumstances? It is for these four reasons, at least, and I would highly recommend disciplining your spirit to pursue these four simple disciplines. At least to make them a part of your response. Because this is why God's doing this. Okay? Now, you like it when people respond in a way that you intend them to. Right? Don't you? Yeah, you do. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm looking at Rick, right? I'm assuming Rick has to walk onto a job... Look at somebody who doesn't want to finish the job. And he joyfully tries to say, hey, let's finish the job. And, and Rick's, Rick's longing is for that laborer to say, yes, let's do this together. And Rick loves that. Amen. <laughs> Parents, you love that when our children respond To what we've allowed in their lives, or what God has allowed in their lives, or what we're trying to accomplish, when they respond in concert with your intentions, there's nothing more beautiful than that. And I would argue that these are at least four of God's intentions, and there's there's often others. You may be wondering uh, this morning, well, who are these righteous, right? Uh, And who are the upright? sort of bookending our our comments here. Is the righteous, what can the righteous do? And the upright will behold his face. Perhaps that's language or verbiage that is foreign to you. What can I say? Who they are? Amazingly, they're sitting all around you. What? What? Yeah, this is amazing. They're all around you. If that verbiage is foreign to you, I would argue that they're all around you, they're all around you. They are progressively growing up into the people that this passage indicates they will be. Isn't that amazing? They have recognized that to be righteous or upright you have to first consider in Old Testament verbiage the perfect Lamb of God, in New Testament verbiage Jesus, we love that name, Jesus, the historic man, God-man, he is the fountainhead of righteousness. They've realized that. The opposite of righteousness is unrighteousness. I know that's profound. This is what we, apart from Jesus, are. And this is what they've come to realize. They've they've realized, Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and here's our word, and unrighteousness of men. They considered themselves at one point in time among this company. They were unrighteous. And it goes on to say, not only were they unrighteous, but they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They, they, They took what was true and they, they, they suppressed it because their bellies wanted something that righteousness said they couldn't have. So the people around you who are righteous and upright came to realize that at a point in time in their life. And they confessed that. That they were unrighteous and not only were they they were so bad in their unrighteousness that they took the truth, and they suppressed it. The Bible told them in Romans 3.23 that this is the condition of all men. This is the condition of you. This is the condition of me outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus, however, is perfect and righteous. Jesus is God come in the human flesh. In His death, He bore the wrath of God for your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus the righteous died on the cross for you and me the unrighteous. He infinitely and eternally bore the wrath of God for our sin. And if we simply by faith confess that He is the Lord and Savior, we will enjoy His substituting to us righteousness and upright in heartness. And we will now be identified as a righteous, upright individual. So this morning, I know this company of people would implore you to become righteous, to become upright. Confess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Turn from your sin and put your full faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the clear instruction from Psalm 11. Lord, we don't naturally um, work this way. We confess that. The old sin nature raises the fist when the foundations are moved, destroyed. We We walk in seasons of depression and seasons of confusion and we, we forget to respond in a way that you've asked us to. So, Lord, as we've refreshed our heart in these truths, certainly nothing new, we pray, Father, that you would prepare us as we will once again be tested by the Lord in trial, the goal of proving our faith, clarifying the conviction of unseen realities, that we would respond in the way that you've intended us to, and that we would locate you, Lord. Please, help us to find you in the church and in Christ. And help us to, Lord, uh, confess your sovereignty and and, uh, help us to find confidence in your character. Uh, We thank you for it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.